All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Uneducated economist here. I got my good friend George Gammon with us today. Thank you, George, for taking time out of these holiday season to come and uh, talk with the uneducated economist. I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Well, I appreciate you having me. It's always fun to talk. And uh, Merry Christmas to you, your family, and all your viewers. Oh, well, Merry Christmas to you the same, man. Thank you very much. Um, you know, for those I don't, I can't imagine anybody not knowing who you are at this point. Uh, yeah, of, mean, course, of course, of course. Blown <laughs> up macroeconomics like YouTube. You're on mainstream media now. I see you on Fox News. I mean, holy moly, man, you're killing it out there, dude. I love it. I love seeing that. You know, when um when I first met you, it was like a few years ago when you. Yeah had your YouTube channel. It was, you know, built on a kind of a real estate idea. And he started doing these whiteboard videos. And I thought, man, this, this dude is good. I gave you a shout out just to say, hey, man, you know, you should go check out George Gammon. He does these great whiteboard videos, much in line with what we're thinking. And um, you kind of oh, took I appreciate it. I... a little bit, you know, you, you said, hey, man, let me update your channel a little bit and help you out. We kind of been friends ever since. And I, uh, I really appreciate that, man. Thank you. Yeah, well, I appreciate the shout out. That was very kind of you. I think at the time you probably had about 5,000 subscribers and I probably had maybe 200 or something like that. And so it was very nice of you to do that. And um, yeah, it's really, it's been fun to see both the, the channels grow and, uh, you know, watch you have a, a very large impact on not only just kind of the I mean, you always tend to say that you're you cater to the the blue collar kind of average Joe and Jane, and that may be true. But I know so many hedge fund managers and professional money managers that actually watch your channel religiously. So, <laughs> <laughs> so well, I think that's been fun to see as well. Well, I thank you, Brad. Yeah, I guess they like that alternative view that I might have. So, um, but that's one of the things that, you know, we kind of find is that, you know, these different views that we have on things, when we compile them together, it gives us the, the ideas in which that we need to do in order to make the decisions for ourselves. And that's really what these discussions are all about is to try and, you know, kind of throw these ideas back and forth to kind of get the, the different perceptions from the different levels that we're at. And um, one of those is inflation everybody's talking about this inflation thing. And you did a great video the other day talking about what nobody seems to be talking about. And that is the possibility of a deflationary scenario yeah. that could come in. And, you know, I really would like for you to kind of talk a little bit about that, like how everybody was stuck in this inflationary concept, which is very legitimate. I mean, there was, yeah. you know, it was happening, Yeah. but a lot of times we kind of lose focus on what could also take place. So maybe kind of like let us know a little bit about inflation and what you're seeing happening. And also time horizons. Time horizons, like, exactly. Like if you ask me what the 2020s is going to look like, I would say most likely it's going to be an inflationary decade. Like in the 2050s, we'll look back on the 2020s and say, yeah, that was like the 1970s or the 1940s from a standpoint of we had significant bouts of inflation throughout the entire decade but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we're going to see in 2023 and so you know when you zoom in on the next six months or the next year i think it'll most likely be uh, disinflationary so not necessarily deflation where prices are actually going down but you have lower price increases and um 
but that depends on if we have a soft landing or a hard landing. I think if we have a soft landing, then you will see prices increase at a slower rate, like we said. But if you have a hard landing, I think you actually could see a quarter or maybe more of actually deflation where, where prices go down. And we saw this during the GFC. If people go back and remember after Lehman Brothers, um, I can't remember whether the deflationary quarter that we, it must've been in 2009. It's probably like Q1 or Q2 of, of 2009. If you look at a chart of CPI, you'll see that it actually went negative. And going into the GFC, I'm, I'm guessing the CPI was probably hovering around, what, maybe four, five percent if my memory serves me well so even to get down to negative two you know that was a, a significant decline but i'd also encourage people to go back and think why did we see the inflation rate go from two percent or sub two percent to over nine percent and i understand that the cpi the way it's measured dramatically understates inflation but let's just use that that the CPI as a proxy for whatever inflation is doing instead of an absolute number. So I would argue that it was demand side and it was supply side. So if, if you look at the demand side, well, we all know what happened there. The government sends out stimulus checks. We get PPP loans. The government says you don't have to pay your mortgage. You don't have to pay your rent. You don't have to pay your student loan. So if you look at your, your, your own personal profit and loss, your revenue skyrockets and your expenses plummet. Okay, well, that means you've got a lot more purchasing power. And then on the supply side of the equation, we're saying, okay, we're going to lock everyone in their house. We're not going to let them go to work. And the whole world is going to do this. And then we'll just assume that all the stuff that we've been buying just grows on trees. And we'll have uh, unicorns just deliver it to our house, <laughs> you know. And then we found out, hey, oh, well, wow, those global supply chains those actually matter quite a bit. And so you see this uh, double whammy, if you will, kind of these two dynamics at play that creates a perfect storm, where you've got an increase in demand and a significant decrease in supply, and that's where you take inflation, or at least the it was measured by the CPI from sub two up to 9% plus, you know, 9%, 9.1 or wherever the high water mark was. So now we understanding that that's how we got to where we are. And I know there's limitless variables, but I think those two, we can all agree are, are probably the, had the biggest impact. Mm -hmm. You say what's happening to the supply side of the equation right now. Okay. Well, it's definitely not as good as it. We didn't go back to the way it was in 2019. We're obviously not there yet, especially what's going on with these, these crazy sanctions against Russia, and that, that's created even further disruptions. But we're not at the same level of supply chain disruption as we were in the middle of the pandemic when everyone was locked in a cage. So that, that you could say it's not great, definitely not back up to 100%, but it has improved, let's just say slightly. So now we look at the demand side of the equation. All right, there's no more STEMI checks. There's no more PPP. If you look at the average checking account balance for Americans in aggregate total, I actually had this chart, I think it was from JP Morgan, and they broke it down by 
uh, income bracket. I think there are five income brackets. Now, unfortunately, that this data was going back like a year. So you had to kind of just guess as to how fast people were spending down their accumulated savings as measured by the increase to their checking account balance. But back then, uh, even the, the lowest uh, checking account balance, as far as the, 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 the income group that had the least increase in their checking account balance was still like 25% higher than it was in 2019. And I think it went up to maybe like 50%. So with those five income brackets, the, the, the least increase that you had in the average checking account balance from 2019 was 25%. And this was say uh, a year, nine months ago. And they projected that that uh, accumulated savings would not draw down back to where it was. In, in other words, the checking account balances wouldn't go back down to where they were in 2019 until like Q1 or so of 2023. So then you, you've got to think, okay, well, if they've got this additional purchasing power because they've got more money in their bank account, it's, just, it's a pretty direct relationship, then you say, what happens when they're drawing this down? Okay, they're drawing this down because they're spending more money, they're going to restaurants more, they're, they're spending more on discretionary, and I, I would argue that that's been coming to a, a very uh, quick halt. I mean, that's been running into a brick wall if you look at the, at the data. But then you also say, okay, well, they could be drawing down that money, not just because they're out just spending frivolously, but also because we've had negative real wage growth. So it is true that nominal wages have gone up significantly since 2020, but they haven't kept pace with the rate of inflation. So that means that, that as far as your the purchasing power from your paycheck, if you look at that today compared to 2019, your paycheck might be more as far as the nominal number, but you can buy a hell of a lot less with that paycheck, which would lead me to believe that that's another reason why that checking account balance is coming down and down and down and down and down. Now, the problem with that is once the checking account balance gets down to where it was in 2019, we still have the problem of negative real wage growth which means that that, that, that uh, checking account balance will probably go down even further until it goes negative. So if you're just looking at that demand side, you can see how the dynamics that led to where we were when we got up to 9.1% are, are reversing and reversing to a significant degree. Another thing that a lot of people look at, I think rightfully so, would be the increase in M2 money supply. And I'm sure you've done countless videos on this, but if you go back to 2020, I mean, M2 increased by what, 25%? Maybe even more than 25%. So obviously this might, this in and of itself might not create inflation, although it's definitely a tailwind. Uh, it's something that we've got to say impacted the inflation rate that we did see to a significant degree. So now you look at M2 money supply, and if your viewers pull up a chart, a Fred chart, they'll see that it's actually plateaued, and now it's starting to come back down. So if the argument was a substantial increase in M2 led to inflation, well, that you've got to argue that a significant decrease in M2 
is most likely going to lead to disinflation, uh, if not deflation, especially when you look at asset prices. So I'm, I'm not here to say that M2 can't go back up. I'm not here to say that the government won't send out more stimulus checks, which will increase the checking account balances even further. I'm saying that if we continue on the trend that we're on right now, this is where we're headed until the government intervenes and does something uh, stupid again to create an, uh, a misbalance between that supply-demand dynamic. And I, I think that the probability of that is actually pretty high, but maybe not in the next uh, six months. In fact, I just did a story today on how 63% of Americans actually favor stimulus checks to combat inflation. And most of your viewers know, because they're relatively sophisticated that watch your channel, that the way you solve a problem of inflation is by decreasing demand and increasing supply. <laughs> so if what we're doing to fight inflation is actually increase demand, then we can't expect inflation to come down significantly. So it's all kind of a timing mechanism, you know? It's all like, how long do we continue on this trajectory, which I would argue is disinflationary for the reasons I just mentioned. And then how long will the government go until they come in with their next round of stimulus that will increase that demand side, or maybe do another, who knows what they'll do, the economy to distort it to a level where we see another significant decrease in supply. Yeah, no, that was great. I mean, that it, that was a great description of what's going on with the inflation, with how it is that people are perceiving this, because I think a lot of it is also like inflation expectation. And when you have an inflation expectation that has been bombarded into you, you start behaving in ways that creates the inflation that takes place. So something very similar can happen on the opposite end of that. If you feel that there is a deflationary scenario or you feel that things are going to start slowing down, you start behaving in ways that does cause the economy to slow down on top of it as well. And I think that's like not necessarily something that is like easily to gauge, right? Because it's yeah, just right. really it's just the people's, you know, perceptions and what is happening out there. And yeah, there's when so many have, variables to that as well. Right, exactly. And this is kind of one of the things that I feel is that because it is such a confusing topic to understand, like how, like even just the Fed's balance sheet and how the unwinding of the balance sheet starts pulling in the liabilities back in, that's a tightening, that's a contraction of the money supply or can be, you know, that little concept right inside of that is very difficult for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. And so when you come off of this heavy inflationary scenario, and then all of a sudden you have this shifting by the Federal Reserve where they start going into a monetary tightening, a lot of people are still stuck in the inflationary concept and not realizing that things are going to slow down dramatically coming into the future due to the higher interest rates or just the slowing down of the economy in general. Yeah, um, and you have recency bias there as well. And another thing that makes it even more complex is it, it's, it's not just about M2 money supply. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And it's, you know, even, even I was under the impression that, well, if you increase M2, then you're, you're most likely going to have inflation. But, but when I've, I've done a lot of research on this over the last two or three weeks, and I'm happy to share the numbers with you, I think you yeah. may find it interesting as well, but it, the, the, the increase in M2 
isn't really what matters. What matters, the, that, that, that definitely impacts it, but it's not what matters the most, I should say. What matters the most is the increase in M2 or the amount of M2, even if it's staying at a static rate, relative to real GDP. Okay. So as, as an example, um, I looked at data from like 30-year segments. And the first 30-year segment I looked at was roughly 1990 to 2020. And you saw that the M2 money supply increased by 400% during that time frame. So most people would say, oh my gosh, 400%, that's outrageous. That's going to create massive amounts of consumer price inflation. And to a certain degree, they were correct. Because if you look at the CPI, it was up over that 30-year span of, of maybe 100%, 117%, something like that. I don't have the chart in front of me, but these are, are rough numbers that help you understand the concept. And then when you look at nominal GDP, it was oh somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, maybe 300%, something like that. So if you just look at that chart, you could conclude that, well, M2 goes up, so does CPI. So ideally, if we could just fix the rate of M2 or make sure that it only goes up by like 2% per year, then we would inevitably solve the inflation problem, which, which as you know, and as you articulate well on your channel, is hugely detrimental and disproportionately detrimental to the poor and middle class. But then you go back and take that 30-year that time segment, and instead of looking at 1990 to 2020, you look at 1870 to 1900, roughly. And you see that the money supply, as measured by M2, during that time frame, went up by 400%, exact same number. And so you could say, well, then, George, obviously, the inflation rate must have been near 100 or you know, right around where it was at this at from 1990 to 2020 no the inflation rate was negative 45 percent so from 1870 and i'm using is like 1867 to 1899 something like that. well let's just say from 1870 to 1900 we had an increase of m2 by 400 percent the exact same as 90 to 2020 but instead of having 100 percent roughly inflation we had 45% deflation, deflation. And the kicker there is with this 45% deflation, we had about 100% nominal GDP growth. So when you actually do the math and you adjust for the 45% deflation, we had about 300% real GDP growth during that time frame, with an increase of M2 at about 400%. So then when you do that same math to try to figure out what real GDP growth was during that latter time frame, you see that real GDP growth was only, I think it was, right off the top of my head, like 94%. So that, that's when, and, and you look at different time segments, right, throughout the, the, the economic history or monetary history of the United States, and you see that there's a direct relationship, not necessarily to M2 and consumer price inflation, but M2 and the delta between M2 
and real GDP. That's your big problem. So then you say, okay, well, what is the most significant um, factor when it comes to real GDP? And in all the, the research I've done over the last three or four weeks, uh, it, it's pretty clear that, that the, I believe the main driver, and if it's not the main driver, it's definitely one of the main drivers, is uh, government spending as a percentage of GDP. Right. So what, what is also fascinating is if you go back to that time frame when real GDP growth was 300%, the government spending as a percentage of GDP was under 10. <laughs> it was about like 7 8%, something like that, right? Where if you go to that latter time frame, uh, it was 45% roughly. So as real, excuse me, as government spending goes up, as a percentage of GDP, usually real GDP goes down. And when real GDP goes down, but yet you have a, a similar increase in M2, you're going to have inflation vastly exceed a time frame when there was far less government spending and therefore far more real GDP growth. And this um, correlation is consistent whether you look at uh, 1870 to 1990, whether you look at 1930 to 1960, 1960 to 1990, 1990 to uh, uh, 2020, it's the, the, the relationship stays very, very similar to that. So your viewers may say, okay, George, I get it. What's the point? How does that help me decide what may happen in 2023? Well, this is just another variable that I think we've got to pay attention to. And this variable is what's going to happen in the next recession to government spending as a percentage of GDP. And I would argue that it's going to skyrocket. If history is any teacher, going back to the GFC or going back to the, the 2020, we saw that government spending just <laughs> you know, goes parabolic. And so I, I think this would also make me argue, as far as my base case, for uh, for for the next six months or so, we get this disinflation, right? Potentially deflation, depending on how bad the recession is or whether we get a soft landing, hard landing. But then what the government does most likely increases that government spending, uh, you know, whether it's stimmies or whatever we, we see, which will distort the economy. This distortion of the economy creates less economic output, which by definition is going to create lower real GDP. So then when you have the same increase in M2 money supply, regardless of whether that's happening as a result of the Fed um, you know, buying bonds from the private sector or any bank buying bonds from the private sector, which would increase M2, or uh, bank maybe bank lending just goes through the roof, credit creation, because the Fed's backstopping their balance sheet, and therefore we get that increase in M2, or maybe it's direct stimmy payments. But then you're going to see that M2 going up and that real GDP going down, I think that's, if history is a teacher, that's going to really put upward pressure on the CPI, which could take us into that next wave of CPI growth, just like we saw in the 1940s, just like we saw in the 1970s. Inflation never goes up in a straight line. I mean, another statistic I'll give your viewers is in 1947, the CPI got to 19%, 19%. And no more than two years later, the CPI was at negative 2%. So 
So we went from 19% inflation all the way down to 2% deflation within the matter of about two years. And even in the 70s, you know, in 76, as an example, I've seen several debates between Milton Friedman and other pr uh, prominent economists of the, of the day where they thought inflation was done in 76 because, you know, it went up and then they had that recession, like 70, what was it, 74, 75. And then the inflation rate went from like, let's say 10 or 11, all, all the way down to maybe like five, four, something like that. And so a lot of the economists were saying, oh, yep, we're done. Woo. Good jobs, Arthur Burns. You, you solved inflation. Good job, buddy. Uh, and then Milton Friedman was out saying, no, 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 no. This is not the end of inflation. Uh, this, this is just the beginning. And they would debate back and forth. And sure enough, as we know, Milton Friedman uh, was on the right side of history. But, uh, but my point is, even in the 1970s, you know, we think of that as an inflationary decade, but that had little spikes of inflation, and then it had valleys of, of disinflation. Now, we never got deflation in the 1970s, but we did get that in the 1940s. And I, and I think most people, if you just look at a chart, uh, you would easily come to the conclusion that 1940s in aggregate total was definitely an inflationary decade. Right. No, that's incredible to think about. So like, you know, when we think about like maybe our timeline, because, you know, a lot of our viewers, like, you know, that might've been really confusing for them to try and follow all that stuff. But if we just kind of break it down very simply, like if we follow this inflationary scenario that you might be predicting coming into the future is that we're going to have what may resemble a disinflation or an easing in the inflationary pressures, which a lot of people are going to get confused by thinking that the problem is over. Yeah, and yeah. at that point, you know, we're actually going to see a reversal in that inflationary problems, like people's paychecks not going as far, like the consumer price index not, you know, like not going down but continue to go up. That's going to continue to put pressure on the Federal Reserve to maintain the higher interest rates for longer, is it? Is it not? I mean, what do you think the Federal Reserve's reaction to this is going to be? I think they pause, and then I think they pivot, and then once okay. they pivot that this is a result of, of inflation coming down due to a recession, maybe soft landing, maybe hard landing. And then when inflation comes back down closer to their, their 2% target, uh, then they're much more likely to say, okay, inflation is something of the past. We beat it. Now this gives us cover to go ahead and do the next round of stimulus or the next, you know, cares act 2.0. And instead of being 5 trillion, this time it needs to be eight trillion, you know, because of the monetary heroin that we all talk about. That you know, if you give the the government or if you give the economy that's addicted to the drug this much of the drug, well, next time you got to give it more and more and more and more, just to have the exact same effect. Now the problem with that is that even if that doesn't increase M two money supply, so let's just assume for a moment that the Fed was out of the picture. Okay. So the government is going to deficit spend to the tune of $5 trillion. Okay, well, they're going to have to pay for a lot of that spending. They're going to have to tax it. And then the deficit would have to come from issuing bonds. All right, people say, well, George, there's no demand at the long end of the curve, you know, for the 10-year and the 30-year. And I would say, yeah, you're right. The decline, there's definitely a decline in demand, although we still see private foreigners buying a lot of the 10-year and 30-year treasury, but they got plenty of demand at the front end. 
plenty of demand. I mean, if you look at the one month treasury right now, it's trading at like 50 or 60 basis points under reverse repo. So this oh, is wow. telling us that you could throw in, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm no fan of government spending, <laughs> trust me, uh, as I just pointed out through that long uh, lesson in, in history and M2 and real GDP growth. But I, I do think that the market would, would easily absorb another, who knows how many trillions of dollars worth of bonds, as long as they were issued at the front end of the curve. Right. So, and, so basically and, issuing out some short, short maturities, you know, like yeah. the probably like what, less than five year kind of thing or. Oh, no, 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 no. T-bills. Even shorter than T-bills. That. T-bills. 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 All the way down to a few months. Yeah. Yeah. So one month, three months, six months, okay. you know, all of those uh, short term uh, maturities. I think that's because see the market uses those as collateral. So mm-hmm. they're, they're not really buying, you know, a 10 year, they're going to buy it to either get a capital gain from interest rates going down, or they're going to use it to hedge their, uh, their balance sheet. You know, a lot of these money managers or, you know, just an average investor is going to buy it to just collect the yield or whatever. But then you've got the Delta between the yield and the rate of inflation, assuming your expenses are, are in dollars, but, but it, it's much more of an investor dynamic at the long end of the curve where the front end of the curve, most of that demand is just really coming from the, the need for collateral in the global monetary system. So right. two, two completely separate entities. And what you can say, I mean, it's shocking with the government having, I don't know, what, a 30 trillion in debt or something, that there's actually significant demand for even more debt, at least from the global monetary system. Mm-hmm. So I think that gives, along with the inflation rate likely coming down due to a recession, especially if we have a hard landing, I'm just saying that that gives the government cover to go ahead and do another uh, stimulus package or maybe UBI. I think that's something that we could be seeing. I think it, it kind of, you know, we get another round of stimulus. And especially if that next round of stimulus doesn't create significant consumer price inflation, then all of a sudden, they, oh, that's something that was just a result of the pandemic. We never have to worry about inflation again. So let's just go ahead and keep deficit spending. And then that right. deficit spending, um, even if it doesn't substantially increase M2. So again, let's say the Fed's out of the picture and the government is just issuing bonds. So they're taking money out of the economy, money that already exists. And then they're just spending it right back into the economy. So on net balance, the supply of currency units chasing goods and services does not increase. Right? And same thing with taxes. Taxes, they're just taking money out and putting money right back in. It doesn't have a, a, a big difference on the, the actual level or the number of currency units in the real economy. So let's just assume they're doing this for a moment, right? So you'd say, well, George, that might not be inflationary because they're not significantly increasing M2. But then I'd go back to those data points that we were discussing earlier, and I'd say, yes, you're right. It might not increase M2, but it most likely will significantly decrease, especially over the next two or three years, real GDP. And this is the key, and this is kind of the blind spot for a lot of people where they they wouldn't recognize that if real GDP goes down significantly, then you're you're most likely going to have an inflationary backdrop or an inflationary uh, type of environment, right? And as in the further that, that real GDP goes down, meaning the more government spending you have as a percentage of GDP, you know, you're basically squeezing out the private sector is basically mm-hmm. what's happening. And the private sector is what's creating goods and services. 
I think that's why you you see that dynamic at play. So uh, the, the government just you know goes from forty five percent up to let's say sixty percent, up to sixty five percent, and and then they're spending money inefficiently, and therefore that would lend itself to the next few years going right back to that inflationary mode, and then you know then it just kind of happens in, in cycles, and then the next thing you know we're we're sitting in twenty thirty, and we look back on the twenty twenties and we say yeah you know at times the the inflationists were dunking on the deflationists, you know, and then at other times the inflationists were dunking on the deflationists. <laughs> it, right. it just goes back and forth and back and forth. But I think the the prudent investor will will realize that you can have these environments at different times throughout the entire decade. That's exactly right. You know, um, something that we kind of talk about, and we all, we we. We are pretty much assuming, but we pretty know, pretty much know as well, is that there is going to be some sort of effort coming from, you know, the, whether it's the banking industry and the Federal Reserve, the government. But at some point, there's going to be an issue and stimulus is going to have to be made, right? There's going to be the government's going to intervene somehow and they're going to do some sort of money injection. Now, back during the great financial crisis, we had this systemic problem with the mortgage markets and the toxic securities and stuff like that, that started bringing down the financial market. And then just recently we had the pandemic, which locked everything down, which I think was more of an excuse than it was a reason. But what do you think is going to be the excuse on the next one that comes up? What is going to be their ultimate reason for being able to stimulate because if you don't have a systemic failing companies like the big banking system or you don't have a pandemic what excuse can they use or what do you think they're going to use well ironically it could be inflation i mean again Just in a disinflationary up. environment uh, it doesn't mean that we're, we're deflation you know that that can be inflation going from seven percent down to five uh, but that's still an increase of prices year over year by five percent that's still very very significant so I think, and I, I don't know if I finished uh, telling, anyway, I was, I was doing a, a story today on um, the American view, the average American view towards stimulus checks. Oh, okay. And um, I, if, forgive me if I'm, I'm repeating myself here, but six, the studies show that 63% of Americans favor stimulus checks to combat inflation. Yeah. And now that's really interesting to think about because that's really like throwing gasoline on the fire. Oh, absolutely. It is because, right. um, yeah, like, like we all know that in order to fight inflation, you've got to decrease demand, increase supply. So what mm -hmm. they're doing to fight inflation is just increasing demand, which will just, right. to your point, just exacerbate the problem and then just make it worse. And then who knows, then they make it, they could even use that as an excuse to say, oh, oh well, those greedy capitalists, Right. raised prices so we just need to do more stimulus checks you right. know to to help you to help cushion the blow of consumer price inflation you know this is what the politicians are telling us so my point there is we might not have ubi thrust upon us it, it might be a bottoms up type thing where unfortunately the people just can't connect the dots and and they demand stimulus. Uh, yeah. the, the government doesn't uh, just say, here, this is what you're doing. Right. And that's kind of, that's one of the scenarios that I think is going to come down is going to be something 
to do with food supply. It's going to be a hunger thing. And when you tell people, when people are hungry and the government says, here's your solution to, to get you something to eat. Yeah. Take, free money, quote unquote. Free right? money. Yeah. I mean, they'll take, they won't even hesitate. They'll be like, where do yeah. I sign up? Show me, where do I get the tattoo? How do I get the injection? Whatever it takes, just yeah, give it yeah. to me. And, you know, especially when it comes to something like food, there's going to be like almost no argument to it at all. Yeah. I do think they'll see? do price controls too, Simon. I think they'll, they'll, I think they'll, like, if we go into another wave of inflation, like we're talking about like a year from now or so, mm -hmm. um, I think they, my base case is they bring out these, the new round of stimulus, which basically turns into universal basic income. And, okay. and they do that through like a central bank digital currency. So, you know, to your point, the, the Federal Reserve or the politicians say, hey, in order to get your thousand dollars a month, in your freedom dividend, or whatever Andrew Yang wants to call it, you just go ahead and download the Fed app on your phone. That's all you have to do. And so everyone's like, yeah, 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 let's download the Fed app, let's download the Fed app. And then that gives you an account at the Fed. Just like right now, you've got an account B of A or Wells Fargo or Chase or whatever. So now all of a sudden, the Fed can create these bank reserves out of thin air, which is really the, the quote unquote money printing. You know, most people say, oh, the Fed prints money. And you and I both say that. And it's, we use that term too generically. And I, I'm more guilty of that than anybody. But at the end of the day, the Fed really doesn't print money. They just print bank reserves. Uh, especially so if your definition of money is M2, then the Fed doesn't completely control that. And they, they might not even, um, it might just be a drop in the bucket, let's say. But anyway, yeah. uh, the main point there is this would give the Fed the ability to directly impact M2 money supply to a significant degree. Because now all of a sudden, they, they are able to quote unquote print money in the sense that those bank reserves can be used as legal tender right. in the United States to buy goods and services. And, and currently, bank the, the liabilities on the Fed's balance sheet cannot do that. Or you know, they, they have to have that intermediary of the... Um, of the uh, commercial banking system. Yeah. And that's, and that's the other, like, you know, that's the other thing that I feel is going to have to cause, like, there's going to be almost some sort of crisis scenario taking place in order for them to restructure this banking system to accommodate the central bank digital currencies. Like, I mean, I don't know, maybe I got this wrong, but to me, like the direct injection of central bank digital currency from the Federal Reserve into the monetary, like into our hands, essentially, yeah, yeah. isn't exactly legal through their charter. Like they have to route it through the, yeah. the commercial, but the central bank digital currencies could really like if they were to introduced into our system could be given that permission almost yeah. like that, that, that circumventing, you know, you're absolutely right that that would be completely antithetical to the Federal Reserve Act. Mm -hmm. But I just assume that they're gonna ignore it because that's exactly what they did during the pandemic. You know, they set right. up those special purpose vehicles to buy corporate debt, that, that they can't do that. <laughs> but they no. did it anyway, and no one no. called them out on it. Nobody, no. except for, you know, Barnes and, and, and me with what we're doing with that FOIA request. But right. other than that, I didn't see anybody really calling them out on it. So, um, yeah, I, I think to your point, I, I think what would most likely happen, kind of my base case, if we, if we, I think we'll definitely see a central bank digital currency. It, it's, it's, it's really a matter of when. And I, I think if, if, if we don't have a hard landing and we have this soft landing, 
I think you're looking at three years, five years down the line where you get this central bank digital currency, but I think we have a hard landing and they really want to inject the, we'll call it the liquidity or the money directly into the system. And the Fed doesn't want to go through the uh, commercial banks. I, I think that they'll probably figure out a way to circumnavigate the Federal Reserve Act in, in order to get that done. So now how they do that, uh, who knows, you know, they'll set up another special purpose vehicle uh, that will be uh, a liaison, let's say, between the Federal Reserve and the, the people who are receiving the stimulus on their phone. But at the end of the day, it'll still be a liability of the Fed that will be spent into the economy as legal tender. Um, you know, effectively, it'll be the same, but there might be a middleman in there just so they can say, oh, oh, no, 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 we're, we're abiding by the law, right. arm, yeah. you know, arm length, uh, it's going to be the same arm length distance as it was between FTX and Alameda, you know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Completely separate companies. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. What do you, um, what do you, what do you, I mean, obviously nobody can tell the future on what's going to happen off of this, but if you were just to kind of give it a guess on what would happen with precious metals and gold, if there was an introduction of central bank digital currencies, what do you think those two things are going to, what do, what do you think is going to happen with precious metals? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's a tough one. Yeah, I'm not sure how that would, how that would, if we have, because see, I don't even know that if people can't connect the dots between stimulus checks and inflation, I, I don't know that they'll connect the dots between a central bank digital currency and the need to hold purchasing power outside of the financial system. Uh, you know, i.e. gold, silver, Bitcoin, something like that. I, I think what, what may have a bigger impact is when, if they ban cash. Because if they move to a central bank digital currency, in order to maximize on the effectiveness for the central planners and the authoritarians, they would also need to ban cash. And that's why, you know, when people tell, ask me, you know, what can we do to push back against this stuff? I say, just don't let them ban cash. Uh, it, you know, most people don't understand why that's so important. But that, that, that and, and the reason is because it just gives you some form of purchasing power outside of their control, outside of the system. So, and why is central bank digital currency such a big deal? Well, one of the main reasons, because you know, a lot of people say, especially the average Joe and Jane, 
what who cares because the i don't use cash anymore all dollars are digital so don't we already have a digital currency it's called the dollar so who cares if it's a fed coin or what it's called it's still the exact same thing but what they don't realize is that the the electronic digits you have in your checking deposit account right now uh those are not programmable. Once you start getting Fed coins on your Fed app, those are going to be programmable. So what that means is if, let's say, you know, you're in, in Portland, Oregon, where I grew up, or close to Portland, where I grew up, and I know that is a mecca for 7.3 power strokes. So this is a, a model of Ford engine that they had between 1994 and a half and 2002 and a half. And it was actually made by International, but it's called a 7.3 Power Stroke. And there's a diesel engine they put in a lot of their pickups, which is incredibly desirable. It's one of the best engines ever made. And why? Because it'll go a million miles before the thing's even broken in. <laughs> I'm exaggerating a little bit, but the, the thing's really. just, it, it's, it's bulletproof. It's just, it's a bulletproof motor. And that's why it's still in such high demand. Okay, fine. But it gets, what, 10 miles to the gallon, and that's diesel. So say that you live up in Portland and you love your your you know 1997 uh, crew cab 7.3 diesel, and but you've got all these Fed coins and that are programmable, and not only that, but every single purchase you make is going directly to the Fed, so they can monitor all of your transactions, so they can give you a carbon score. Let's just assume for a moment where they say, okay, Simon, you've got, you've bought uh, 50 gallons worth of diesel this month. We can see that. So this means that we allot you, let's say a hundred carbon points per month. So this takes you down to 50 carbon points. And let's just assume that you went out and you had a family dinner or something like that. So you bought a bunch of steak and some hamburgers for the kids. And we all know that, that cows completely destroy the the um, the environment so that will bring your carbon score down to let's say 10 points well now all of a sudden it's the 21st of the month you got to get to work and you got to fill up your truck with diesel but you don't have enough carbon points so what happens is when you take your fed app to the gas station uh, to and you swipe it to fill up your truck although you have dollars in that account they're programmable and the Fed programs it to where you cannot use those dollars to purchase the gas because it'll take you over your allotted carbon credits for the month. And this is just one little small, 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 small example as to why there's such a huge difference between the digital dollars you have in your checking account right now and the digital dollars that you would have on your Fed app if we go to a central bank digital currency. Yeah. And it's, I mean, when you, when you think about the central bank digital currencies and the elimination of cash, the, and you let your mind spin on some of the, yeah. the power trips that these guys could go on with that. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, there's some ideas that can really be sold on, on the whole central bank digital currency, like just not trying to be a defender of it, but just, you know, player of the devil's advocate on it. But like, say, for example, there was a stimulus that needed to be put out there. Yep. Well, you have some people out there who aren't going to put their stimulus into the economy. They're going to go and invest it like a smart individual should do, right? But 
they really want people to go out there and spend the money. So you could force that to take place. Like this central bank digital currency stimulus that came to you can't be used for drugs, alcohol, investments. It has to be used on provisions, necessities, power, or stuff like yeah. that. Or you couldn't take it outside the country. Yeah, I can't take it out. And then you can also put a time limit on it. If you don't yeah. spend it in the next 30 days, you lose it. So it can force that stimulus out there and force people to start spending it. I mean, it can really like, I mean, you think about it, it's like a central banker's wet dream to have yeah. something like this. And, they can, able to, and like, they can individualize monetary policy based on narrative and not merit. So as an example, Simon, you, you've eaten a lot of beef this year. You, you obviously have a diesel truck. We don't like that. So uh, when you go to apply for your next home loan, uh, because you've damaged the economy so much, we're going to give you a 10% interest rate, where if you would have just driven a Tesla and eaten bugs, then we would have, we would have given you a 5% interest rate, something like that. Right. So it's doing the social score just by your natural behavior yeah. throughout your life for the previous years. Now it's come time to make a decision on finances. And they're like, well, because you're kind of a jerk back here, or at least in our opinion, you were, we're not going to give you the availability to excel like everybody else can who mm -hmm. didn't pay attention to what we wanted them to do. Yeah, because that's, you're being an irresponsible citizen. Right. So why should we so... give you the same interest rate that all the responsible people are getting? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, at least that idea behind it, but it really, when I think about that, um, like what kind of like, how un-American, how un, how loss of freedom, how the loss <laughs> That's of an constitutional believing, yeah. right? I mean, at least at this point, you can still like have some sort of like, you know, belief that you're free, right? You yeah, can you can yeah. hold on to gold and silver and cash and then say, hey, I'm operating outside of the government or whatever. You can at least have like, you know, this belief that you're doing it. But once it's central bank digital currency, you can't even do that. You can't even imagine yourself being free, you know? At that yeah, point. and and so, yeah, because where that gets difficult is, I think what they would also do is, in order to get a business license, I I, I see them, I see you having to download, like the Fed software, mm -hmm. at your point of sale device in order to have access to your account on, on, the, on the Fed's balance sheet in order to accept Fed coin, which are just denominated in dollars, you know, so dollars, Fed coin, whatever you want to call it. And therefore that, that would give them the opportunity to, to monitor both sides of the transactions and then monitor what was happening on the revenue side for the businesses. And then the expenditure side from the uh, customers as well. Right. And then I, I, I'd have to think this through, but I, I, I would assume there would be a way for them to, well, maybe there wouldn't though, because I was thinking that, that if they had that software, that would somehow give them a way to monitor each transaction. So they could not settle in gold or they could not settle in silver. So let, let's use your lumber store as an example. This, this is a perfect example. So someone comes in and, and you're, you know, you're, you're the, the gentleman who owns your store is like, you know, Simon, I have no choice, but we've got to download the, the software for our, for our point of sale, you know, our credit card machine or whatever. We just, we have to do it because we have to take fed coin. It's, it's just what people want to use. 
So, but then someone comes in and says, listen, Simon, you know, I'm a longtime customer, but I don't like this Fed coin thing. I want to go ahead and settle in silver or settle in, in gold or something like that for my order of my, you know, all this plywood or whatever. And, and the, the owner says, okay, yeah, we can go ahead and do that. That's not a problem. And then, but I, I don't know how the government could get in between that transaction. And that, that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. I'm just trying to think of a way that they could somehow block that, whether it's, you know, reconciliation on, on the taxes at the, maybe what you'd have to do is you'd have to reconcile your gross sales, but that would just have to be like off. That just have to be like under the table, something like right. that. And, and unfortunately, this is where it, this always leads, you know, whether it's with communism in Russia, whether it's, you know, any of these uh, over the top authoritarian central planning type of systems, they always lead to a black market. Yeah. And if, if we go down this path, which unfortunately, I, I think there's a high probability that we will, this is what the government is going to force people to do. They're going to force people to transact in the shadows and otherwise law-abiding citizens. They're, they're going to you know, force them to do things that, that might, might, hopefully won't, but might be actually uh, illegal just to, to survive, just to get through, just to buy that diesel at the end of the month that you need to, to get to work when you're over your monthly allowance for your carbon score. Yeah, I think they can, um, I think what we're going to see, and I think is probably going to play into a lot of what you're saying right there is that they're going to tokenize everything. Like every single yeah. thing in the entire world will be tokenized in the sense that that sheet of plywood just simply can't even be purchased without crypto or some sort of digital currency in order to make the purchase because it's a token. You need to purchase the plywood token in order to get the plywood. Mm. And that tokenizing will then be the digital ledgers that move into the central bank digital currencies. So it would be like, you know, and it, I, I can almost see this happening like on the fly, like in order to, you know, buy this chunk of plywood here, you have to buy the company's token. The token can then buy the plywood. Each sheet is tokenized as right. they're it's like Chuck E. Cheese. You know? like Chuck E. Cheese, you know, just, yeah, you got to get the tokens and play the game, Yeah, you know, same thing. And so with this, then it would be forcing the tracking of each one of those. They would know who got each sheet of plywood within the unit. They would know each lumber yard. They would write down to the customer because they would know whose digital wallet purchased that particular sheet. Yeah. And, and I think that's with, what they use artificial intelligence for. Yeah. And with QR codes and artificial intelligence and stuff, the way things are moving, I could really see that happening where the tokenization of everything happens. We all end up on the digital blockchain technology, even our individual labor selves, you know, end up yeah, doing I, that. I think that's a great point. And then your alternative is just within the United States, just to get involved with the community that tries to transact as, as much as possible outside that system. But I don't think people really realize how difficult that would actually be. Not not saying that it that it you can't do it or that it's not desirable, but but it, that is incredibly difficult. What what I've chosen to do in that world, it, but you know, obviously I've got a lot more flexibility than most people, but um, is just to try to go to and and set up my plan B and C in countries where ninety nine percent of the transactions are currently in cash. Because Absolutely. although they, they, they could implement a, a central bank digital currency in a Colombia, 
as an example where I am right now, it, it, to, to actually do the cash ban and get on that system where everything is tokenized, that would be, it, it's it, that, that it would most likely happen, but your runway is a lot longer in a place okay. where currently such a large percentage of the transactions are settled in cash. Yeah. You know, and that's another thing that you were saying is like, I don't think like people say, well, you can just go back to the barter system. Now I lived on a hobby farm. I raised chickens and vegetables and stuff like that. And we ate a lot off of, off of our own efforts there off of the property, but we had to trade for the majority of what we had. And trading meant that you had to know a lot of people in a network in order to trade for the things that you needed. Yeah. And it's not just a matter of like, Hey, I need, you know, like, you know, there would be people that we knew who had goat's milk, for example, but they didn't always have it. And so like getting it wasn't like just something you could just go to the store and get. So the barter system, although it does work, it is very cumbersome and is not efficient and doesn't provide you with everything you need. Yeah. And, and at some point in time, you, you'd have to interact with, yeah. with like, you know, say you get heaven forbid you break your leg or something. And you got to go or just, you know, the other day, I, I, my neck was giving me problems. So I had to go get an MRI here. And they found out I've, I've got a herniated disc in there that I've got to do physical therapy for. But you know, I doubt someone on your farm is going to have a, an MRI machine to, <laughs> so, you know, see what it boils down to is what, what price are you willing to pay for your freedom? And unfortunately, the government may at least in the West, in the developed world, may put you into a position where the price that you have to pay for your freedom is basically taking your living standards back to what they would have been in like the 1800s. Man, ain't that the truth? I mean, it really yeah. is. If you want your freedom, you got to basically separate yourself from everything that is convenient. Yeah. And you're just living in an agrarian type of yeah. lifestyle. You're basically living like the Amish. Yeah. And I mean, what good is that? What, I mean, how fun is that? <laughs> you know, I mean, I enjoy sitting down and watching movies and stuff. Like I want to like, you know, I enjoy the technologies that we have nowadays. I want to enjoy my, my surroundings and my life and stuff. So yeah, trying to move back into the lifestyle of the Amish. I'm, it's not a desirable condition. For <laughs> me. I'm not, I, I mean, I don't want to do that. You know? so, George, thanks for taking the time today, man. Yeah. Oh my God. It's already been an hour, hasn't it? Just it has. It just flew by. I just checked it. I couldn't believe how fast. But yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me on. It's always fun to talk. Yeah, absolutely, man. Was there anything else you wanted to add that you might thought of that, you know, the viewers should really know about? Or I think we covered quite a bit. I mean, yeah, I think so. If, if your viewers would like to check out the, the data points that I was referencing before, yeah. where kind of my hypothesis is the main source of our consistent and persistent inflation since 1940 isn't necessarily an increase in the money supply, but it's more so a increase in government spending as a percentage of GDP. And why that matters is because so many people out there are, you know, sound money, which I think is great, but, but they see sound money as a panacea. Like right. if only we could fix the money supply, uh, you know, base money, then we would never see inflation. And I, I just, I, I'm not, I just want to say that, that, in my opinion, that's, that's not true. Although it's desirable to have sound money, it, it doesn't fix all of our problems. So we've got to be just as focused. If we want freedom, liberty, and free market capitalism, 
time. We've got to be just as focused, if not more focused, on government spending. And, and then people say, well, George, well, sound money would prevent governments from running deficits and doing all these things. And there again, and that, that's, you've got to look at the tax revenue. Like, I'll give you a quick example, Simon. When, when, I, when you saw, and I know you know these statistics, when you go back to 1940, pretty much from 1940 to where we are today, we, we've never really had any significant bouts of deflation. We had one in, I think, 52 or 53, and then one during the GFC, but it was very short-lived. Where if you go back prior to 1940, to let's say 1870, you just, it's like a heartbeat. It's just up, down, you know, you have tons and tons and tons of deflationary kind of waves, just bam, 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 bam. And so you say, well, why is this? And I think one of the main reasons is because right during the 1940, you know, World War II is, and, and then during the Great Depression, when FDR increased government spending substantially, it took it to a level where it was up over 20%. Once you saw government spending as a percent of GDP over 20%, that's when we really started to see consistent levels of deflation or of inflation, excuse me. It wasn't necessarily the, the start of the Fed in 1913. So then the question becomes, okay, George, if this is true, then what would we need to do in order to get government spending to that level? And you see that even in a sound money system, you could get there very easily. Like right now, as an example, state and local is probably 20% of GDP. And state and local doesn't have the, the quote unquote money printer of the Fed. Okay. So they have to use existing M2 money supply, and it's still over 20%. And then if you look at the government tax revenue as a percentage of GDP, that is right around 18%. So I don't know that if we were on like a gold standard, as an example, I don't know that the tax revenue would be less than 18%. Um, it's so my point there is that yes, sound money is desirable, but we have to get hyper, hyper, hyper focused on government spending, taxation, uh, deficit spending, uh, reducing regulations, these types of things. And sound money in and of itself, I don't think gets us there. So anyway, uh, the, the, the data points in these charts that I would give your viewers, um, let me get the website here for you. It's all on this website, and this this is incredible in five. In fact, you're going to, I'm sure, love this thing. But the website is longtermtrends.net. And that's where you've just got all this data that I was referencing going all the way back to 1870, which I think will just, uh, your viewers and, and maybe you will find incredibly valuable and uh, maybe help you think about you know, this problem of inflation in a little different way. Yeah. Awesome, George. Thank you so much. And I will definitely grab that link and put it down in the description. I will also put a link to the, uh, to the, your website or to your channel website. Um, you got the rebel capitalist event coming up as well. Don't you? That's yeah. Cool. We've got, yeah. The next live event is May 12th through the 14th in Orlando, Florida. Man, uh, you've excited. been a speaker there. So Ron Paul, Jeff Snyder, Brent Johnson, all those guys. So if your viewers want to check that out, they can go to rebelcapitalslive.com. Yeah, definitely check out the Rebel Capitalist Live. Uh, the event is just incredible. I have never had a place where the energy is 
to the level of that. I mean, it's positive, it's networking, it's information, it's everything that you could want. And I mean, I can't imagine a better a better economic convention than the one that you put on. So thank you for doing thank that for everybody. Yeah, th thank you for plugging it. Yeah, you bet. All right, George, we'll talk to you later. Man. All right, have a good one. You too.